The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to you, Lord Christ. Christ. again, everyone. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. We pray that we would hide your word deeply in our hearts, that we might know you, love you, and follow you all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I began a new sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, and we also launched a capital campaign to build a permanent sanctuary as well as some additional classrooms. And so basically every Sunday evening, Wednesday evening and Thursday evening until the end of October, David Breeding and I will be at various homes around uh, the city with our congregants and talking about this campaign and inviting you to come and to learn about the campaign and to participate in it. And we do hope, I do hope and, and pray that you would come because I believe this is an essential endeavor for us right now as a church, in part because what we're doing on Sunday morning isn't sustainable long-term three services back to back to back with 10 minutes in between. And then not only beyond Sundays, throughout uh, the week, our campus is maxed out in its usage. Pretty much every day, Monday, Tuesday, or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all day, and every evening throughout the week. But beyond our current needs as a church now, I think it's an essential endeavor for the needs of the church in the future. Because what's happening at All Saints isn't happening broadly in the church in our culture. You all know the statistics about church attendance and what's happened over the past several generations. The great generation, my grandparents' generation, they attended church at about 60% of the entire population. Not just church members on, on, a, on a roll somewhere, but actively engaged. Then the silent generation, my parents' generation, dropped to 45%. And then the boomer generation dropped to 33%, so a third. Then Gen X, my generation, has dropped to a little bit less to 27%, but the millennial generation is now only at 18%. And my children's generation, Gen Z, Barna says is the first truly post-Christian generation in our culture's history. But what excites me so very much about All Saints is that all of the generations are here. 
and represented and, and worshiping together. And not only all the generations, but Gen Z is here as well. So if you were born between the year 2000 and 2015 or thereabouts, raise your hand. If you're in school, raise your hand. I mean, look at them all. One of my favorite things is to watch all of them walk across the courtyard and then back. And so it's so very exciting that we have the opportunity to communicate to the next generation now that the church now is for them and that the gospel now is for them, but also to do what we need to do to ensure that all saints will be here ministering as we currently are in the future, in the generations to come for them and for their children and for their children. And so it's truly exciting time. I hope that you're excited about it. I hope that you will sincerely pray about it because we need to pray. Even as I said last week, this is not an endeavor that we can accomplish in our own strength. But how are we to pray? This is why we're doing this sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. And last week I began with Jesus's words in verses five through eight, which are about how not to pray. He has to teach us how not to pray before he teaches us how to pray. So today, two points about beginning to pray. First of all, point one, the first words. And then secondly, the foundation. So first of all, the first words, the Lord's Prayer, it's very familiar, I know, to most of us, but it's a summary of all that we ever will need to pray. There's an address, which I'm focusing on this morning, our Father, who art in heaven, and then there's six petitions. The first three deal with that which belongs to God, and then the next three, that which pertains to us. And within these six petitions lie everything that we will ever need to say to God. Uh, Because this is not simply a prayer that's to be repeated collectively week in, week out in worship, which we do every week. It's also a model for all prayer. It's a guide to prayer. It's scaffolding upon which we can build all of our prayers. They're not just six specific petitions. They are, but they're also categories for prayer, beginning with our father, this address. And in these two little words, I would argue is we find the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. And so out of familiarity with them, and there's a lot of familiarity. If you think about it, the Lord's Prayer is probably the most well-known collection of words ever spoken in the English language. So out of familiarity, don't miss the significance of what's being said here, because Jesus doesn't begin by saying our creator or our king. He doesn't say pray this way, oh, great Lord and ruler over all. In Greek, that would be Pantocrator. I love the title, Pantocrator, ruler over all. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, our father, because if you were to begin in that way, you would probably end up praying in a very different way than he directs here. And probably very similar to what he warns about in verses five through eight with the hypocrites and the babblers, those that I talked about last week. What connects the two of them is that they attempt to use God. First, these Jewish hypocrites in verse five God for them is just a particularly chosen pretense in order to perform before others so that they might gain attention or approval for others. And we can do that with prayer. You can do that with anything. Your entire life can be that. But God isn't their interest or their passion. And prayer for them is just this mask that they put on in order to get people to treat them a certain way. God is a means to an end for them. They're using him. But so too also the pagan babblers in verse seven. Babblers, that's the literal translation of this verse, heap up empty phrases. It's Babel speak. It's just word stacked upon word, upon word, upon word. But the reality is, is that the words themselves don't really matter. What matters for these folks in their conception of God and their relationship with him is the words are work. It's the effort 
These words are the work that wears down the reluctant and distant and disengaged God, finally annoying the gods or, or proving themselves to the gods so that they get what they want from them. It's this transactional relationship, devoid of any care or any intimacy, any love, and they too are using God for them as well. He is a means to some greater end. And so too for all of us at some point and at some times, But for some of you, this is all that God is for you, a means to some other end. And do you know how I know? I know because of your crises. When you experience some sort of crisis, you're here. You're here in worship. Or or you're, you're present in some sort of small group, Bible study or a prayer group. Or you're reaching out to others, me as a pastor, other ministry staff. And there's lots of words Lots of words for others, lots of counsel being sought, lots of words for God, sermons that you're listening to, counsel that you're seeking, prayers that you're offering, and you are praying. You're, you're praying that God will reconcile your marriage or he'll heal you or your friend or your loved one or he'll, he'll get you this job or he'll solve this problem. And then maybe he does or he doesn't. Maybe you get what you want and need or you don't, but anyway, either way, the crisis is over and the strain of that crisis abates. The storm that surrounds you abates and you're no longer here. Not like you were before or in a small group or seeking the counsel or praying in any way that you were before because you're using God. He's a creator to you, king to you. Maybe he's the ruler over all out of which and from whom you can get the things that you want. And maybe you get them and it's transaction completed and you'll be back the next time the crisis hits. Or maybe you don't get what you want and you don't come back because you're bitter, you're jaded, and you're cynical because the transaction didn't work. And so is this, this, is this you this morning? I want you to know it can be me very easily. It's a very easy trap for pastors to fall into, to collapse God into their job, to use them to to have some sort of vocational success in a capital campaign, for example. So what about you? Are you attempting to use God this morning? If you are, I need you to know that at some point you will be very, very disappointed because God cannot be used. He will not be used. But beyond that, deeper down, than, than any of the, the self-absorption that we all know and the, uh, the incurvitous in say, the curved inward on ourselves nature. Deeper than all of that, deep down, there is an innate desire that you have not to use God, but to know him. You have a desire for him. And it may be buried deep beneath your sin, the world, the, the evil one has, has convinced you to try and to use him and to settle for a life like that. But deep down, you want him. There was a study that came out several years ago from Stanford about babies' neurological makeup. John Trapp, who's a pastor in Houston at Christ the King, a friend of mine, he told me about it. And it's fascinating. Neuroscientists placed the net of electrical sensors on baby scalps. They called it an electroencephalographic skull cap. Electroencephalographic skull cap. Let's have a word of the day. We haven't had one for a while. Let's try that. I can't even say it. We wouldn't get through it. So, but this electroencephalographic Skull cap, there were sensors that monitored spikes in brain activity when various visual stimuli were presented to them. They did this with adults and with babies. And they noticed that the babies, when they showed them faces, their brain activity mirrored that of adults. But but when they showed them anything else, 
uh, objects, symbols, colors, their frontal lobe, which, which deals with high capacity visual processing, the frontal lobe, it didn't light up. And what they realized was that their visual capacity for everything else developmentally lagged behind their neurological capacity to recognize faces. Fascinating. And why? Because biologically and neurologically, but I would say even more so theologically and spiritually, we were made for a face. It's why when you walk into a room, especially if you're alone, you don't know who's going to be there. What you do is you scan the room for a familiar face. Or when you're having a conversation, you know the difference between a conversation had on the phone or done so face-to-face. And when you're wanting to have a really serious conversation and communicate as earnestly and sincerely as possible, you do so looking someone full on in the face. And when you're suffering some, some, some difficulty or from some devastating loss, there's nothing that you want more than that one person's face to see them because you know in seeing their face, it does something to you because you were made for a face. And the scriptures say that the face that we were ultimately made for was God's face, not to use him, but to behold him and not the face of a creator, though he is, and not the face of a king, though he is, but the face of a father, of our Father, we were created for these to be our first words. It's point one, our first words. But point two, these, these two little words, our Father, they're also the foundation for all of prayer. The problem is that we're so familiar with them. I don't think we appreciate how new and unique and even revolutionary they would have been, especially in this context. Like the first time that I took Alyssa home for um, to meet my parents in Enid, Oklahoma. I've told you before that I lived near a train track, about 75 yards or so behind our house was the train track. And the first time that Alyssa came home, we were sitting in the living room and all of a sudden she shot to attention. And, and on, the, on her face, there was this look of shock and even fear. I think I may have told you this story before. And she goes, what is that? And, and what it was was, was the, the train was rumbling by and the conductor was blowing the horn there. And she says, what is that? And I looked at my dad and he looked at me and you know what we said? What is what? Like we didn't even hear it. So familiar were we to the train that had no impact on us. And I fear that these words, our father are similar. But in the Old Testament, Israel at times was spoken of as God's son and God himself was spoken of as a father, usually in expressions that were more of analogies, like he is like a father to us. Though here in Isaiah 63 and four, which we read, this is the one place in the Old Testament where I've found that the Lord is spoken of as directly, but also in as personal and intimate a way as this. But it's very rare. But with Jesus in the gospels, this title is raised to a whole nother level because he almost exclusively very pervasively, almost exclusively speaks about God this way. And he does so very intimately saying my father, and he'll do so in an absolute way saying the father, but then he will also speak to the disciples and say your father, but this is the only time in all of the New Testament where he says our father. It's entirely unique. Such is the depth of sharing here. It's unparalleled in the New Testament. Now, why? Why does he speak this way? Even more so, how can he speak this way? Because the church has always been completely in agreement and unanimous that what we say in the creed week in after week is true, that we believe in God the Father 
and in Jesus Christ, what? His only son. In Latin, unicum, meaning soul, exclusive, unique. Now, how can Jesus be the son, the only son, by nature and by right, but then also be our father? Only if Jesus is sharing with us that which is uniquely his which is exactly what Galatians 4 is about, our New Testament ring. So flip back one page there. I want to point out a couple of things to you here from Galatians chapter 4. Notice that there are two agents of redemption in this passage. In verses 4 and 5, it's Jesus. And then verses 6 and 7, it's the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, we read that God sent forth his son, his only son, his unique son, but born of a woman, meaning fully human. So God's unique son, fully human, but also fully God, and verse five, in order to redeem people, which I often tell you is, is, it means to buy back, to buy them back and to make them sons and daughters through adoption. Now I'm over halfway through my sermon, but dial in here because if you don't know what Paul talks about in terms of adoption, then you don't fully and completely understand the Christian faith. Because adoption in the Greco-Roman world, it was a little bit different than it is now. It was still a legal covenant and agreement that conferred status and rights. But it often happened when an older person who did not have any children was about to die and that wealthy person wanted to pass along all of their wealth and earthly possessions to someone. So they adopted someone, typically an adult. Oftentimes they would adopt a beloved slave and pass along all of their worldly wealth to them. In fact, one fascinating thing about Greco-Roman law is that you could divorce or disown your biological children, but not your adopted heirs. Once you brought an adopted heir into your family, they remained in the family. Such was the strength of the adoptive bond, even stronger than the biological bond. And that's all behind what Paul is talking about here. That's behind the analogy. It's arguably his primary framework for understanding what it means to be a Christian. And what he's saying is that because of Jesus, who he is and that which he has done, living the life that we were supposed to live but did not, dying the death that we deserved, fully bearing all of the consequences of sin and all the evil on the world on the cross, being raised, that because he was sent forth to do all of that, we now share in his status. We now share in his relationship as God's son. Us, you, me, men and women, daughters, sons of God. So don't let the familiarity of this numb you to it. Think about it with me just for a second. How much does God the Father love God the Son? He loves him infinitely with his entire being. And how much honor and delight and dignity and approval has he poured out upon God the Son? Philippians 2, Paul says that God has bestowed upon Jesus the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there is no honor, there is no delight, there's no approval that he's not poured out upon his son. Now, if you are a Christian, how much does God the Father love you? And how much honor and acceptance and approval and delight does he have for you? The very same honor, delight, and love that he has for Jesus. If you believe in Christ and you follow after him, if you've been baptized into his name, then you've been baptized into his sonship and he graciously shares all of it, all of the benefits, all of the status, all of the rights, all of the prerogatives with you. 
And I hope that some of you are thinking, Tim, that's too easy. I hope that you are thinking, I have done nothing to deserve that. In fact, beyond that, I've not only done nothing to deserve it, I've done even more wrong. I've, I've not loved or honored God anywhere remotely close to what Jesus did. In fact, I've just tried to use him time and time again throughout my life. And you're saying to me that I get all of that which Jesus alone deserves? It seems too easy. Well, welcome to Christianity. Welcome to the faith. That is what we mean when we speak about God's grace. Because as a Christian, you haven't simply had things taken off of you. Negative things like your sin or the consequences of your sin. You haven't simply had that taken off you. This is what I didn't understand about the Christian faith for so many years. You have had so much also put on you, including a new identity and a new status as a son or a daughter of God. And we see this every day with families that have adopted children. I have some very close friends who've adopted kids. And what I've noticed with them is that they're indiscriminate with their love. Indiscriminate, meaning that they don't recognize any distinction between their biological children and their adoptive children. They give the same love, same name, same status and guidance and discipline and attention and care. In fact, all too often, more. I I called several of my friends who's adopted kids this week and I asked them about parenting adopted children. And Ronnie Garcia, senior pastor in Denver at Denver Prez, if you're in Denver, worship with Ronnie. He said some profound things. He said, my wife and I wanted our kids, our adopted kids. They adopted twin girls. We wanted them and loved them long before they wanted and loved us. He said that their biological kids as infants were in many ways easier than their twins because of all that their twins had experienced before they had come into their household. They were oftentimes so very nervous and unsettled, especially at night. And so they had to spend night after night for so many years up with their twins, almost every night, assuring them, comforting them, attending to them in ways and to degrees they didn't have to with their other children. And so what he said to me is he said, in some ways, the twins got more of us early on. Our twins needed more and we delighted to give them more. And then he said that he realizes, he and his wife, Amanda, realize now that they are the parents and even the people they are because of their twins. He said, your struggling kids awaken in you the deepest of affections and compassion. Think about that. Your struggling kids awaken in you the deepest of affections and compassion. Now, if that depth of indiscriminate love and honor and delight is true of my friends as parents, how much more must it be true of God? Another one of my friends named his first child that they adopted Branch because like the biblical analogy emphasized, he had been grafted in like a branch broken off from one tree and bound so tightly to a new tree that the branch becomes one with the tree and fully a part of it. And by the way, for that to happen, you have to cut the tree. You have to scar it in order to graft on that new branch. And if you are a Christian, this is what has happened to you that what belongs to Christ and Christ only uniquely is yours fully and completely given by indiscriminate, indiscriminately given by unfathomable grace. And I wonder to what depth and degree do we believe this? I don't think that we believe it all that deeply because if we did, why would we still be so angry and so anxious and so bitter towards others, towards ourselves, beating ourselves up? Or why would we lack joy or confidence or kindness 
that we know that we should have, that we read of in the scriptures. Why would we lack all of that? We do so in part because we need more than a status with God. We have it, but we need more. But thankfully, he gives more. And this is where I close. He doesn't stop with the status of sonship, but he also gives the experience of sonship. That's verses six and seven here in Galatians 4. As I said, there are two agents in this passage. There's Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus's job is to be that scarred and cut open tree. The, the one who has been broken open in his body on the cross so that we might be grafted in to his very life in and through his crucifixion. And yes, given a new status. But the Spirit's job is to make us experience that status and to know it deeply within the confines of our heart and soul and to delight in all of that, that that status means. In other words, we're meant to feel that it's real and that it's true and that we're assured of it within our hearts so much so that we begin to cry out, even as he speaks of here, saying, Abba, Father. And this, this word crying out, it's such a strong word in Greek. It's this word krazo. It's an onomatopoeic word that references a raven's cry. You know a raven's cry? You know a grackle's cry? We've got way too many grackles here in Austin, Texas. You ever heard those little birds? Piercing cries, like a child in the middle of the night crying out for a father. A cry is not something that you claim. It's not a status that you claim. It's something that you feel and you're moved by. Who else will wake up in the middle of the night and get out of their bed and walk down the hallway past the bathroom where there's a sink where they could get water and they'll come into your bedroom and wake you up from a dead sleep and ask you to get up out of bed and get them a glass of water. What other relationship is like that? There's no other type of relationship that warrants that level of audacity. Husbands, try that with your wife. Try waking her up in the middle of the night and asking her to get up out of bed and get you a glass of water and see how that goes. But that is what the Spirit is impressing upon us here, to lead us to cry out and to know, even as Paul says in Romans 8, that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So do you know this cry? And if you don't, what should you do? Well, you should pray. But you should pray to God as your Father. You should speak to Him like a child to a loving Father. In fact, you should act like a child in order to learn how to pray and in order to grow in your faith. And I know no better way to, to end and close this sermon completely than with a little C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. Because there's a chapter in there called Let's Pretend. It's his sanctification chapter, if you're familiar with that language. It's his chapter on how to become more spiritually like Christ, more spiritually like the one whose status you fully and completely already share. And this is what he says. He says, may I once again start by putting two stories into your minds. One is the story of Beauty and the Beast. The girl, you remember, had to marry a monster for some reason, and she did. She kissed it as if it were a man. And then much to her relief, it really turned into a man, and all went well. The other story is about someone who had to wear a mask, a mask which made him look much nicer than he really was. He had to wear it for a year, and when he took it off, he found his face had grown to fit it. He was now really beautiful. What had begun as a disguise became a reality. And then Lewis goes on to talk about the Lord's Prayer. He says, the very first words are our Father. Do you now see what those words mean? They mean, quite frankly, that you are putting yourself in the place of a son of God. 
To put it bluntly, you are dressing up as Christ. If you like, you are pretending. Because of course, the moment that you realize what these words mean, you realize that you are not a son of God. You're not like the son of God, whose will and interests are at one with those of the father. You are a bundle of self-centered fears, hopes, greeds, jealousies, and self-conceit, all doomed to death. So that in a way, this dressing up as Christ is a piece of outrageous cheek. Remember, he's British, this is like 1950s. But the odd thing is that he has ordered us to do it. Why? What is the good of pretending to be what you are not? Well, even on the human level, you know there are two kinds of pretending. There is a bad kind where the pretense is there instead of the real thing. But there is also a good kind where the pretense leads up to the real thing. Very often, the only way to get a quality in reality is to start behaving as if you had it already. And here, friends, here's the reality, theologically. And that is in Christ, you are infinitely loved and accepted and honored and adored by God the Father because of Christ. Same love, same acceptance, same honor, same delight. You are the adopted sons and daughters of the Father, indiscriminately loved because of unfathomable grace. So believe it and act as though it's so. Dress up like Jesus. Speak and live and pray like it is so. Cry out to God the Father. You will be hurt. And beyond being hurt, you will begin to become more and more in experience what you already are in your status before God. Amen. We pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that by your spirit and for the sake of Jesus, that you would impress upon us all that is true of us and of your son and of his gospel. We pray, Father, that more and more we would cry out as your children, trusting that all that we read and and learn in the scriptures are true. So impress upon us these realities that we might be to the praise of the glory of your grace and, and to the good and for the good of the life of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.